Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone. This is Jessica Zhu. I am an assistant professor of religion at University of Southern California at Dornsife and New Books Network a host in Buddhist studies. Today, we are very lucky to have Professor Hong Yuk Ip from Oregon State University to talk with us about her new book, Grassroots Activism of Ancient China, Moism and Nonviolence, published by Lexington Books in 2022. So Moism, uh, if one is one of the uh, kind of intellectual and activist movements in ancient China during the Warring States period, long before Buddhism got introduced into China in the Han Dynasty. But because Mo is hands down my favorite philosopher of ancient China, so um, I invited Professor Ip here. So welcome, Hong Yok. Thank you so much for writing this fascinating, intriguing book. It's a bit of an unusual approach to study Mozi and intellectual history of ancient China, because when I was reading your book, especially the part about comparative analysis of Moism in the history of nonviolence, this part, this bit, the comparative lens really deepens my understanding of Mozi, the problem of structural violence and diverse ways to resist and chip away the violent systems. And also your book gives me hope. So Hong Yuk, I'd like to start our interview with the traditional New Books Network question. Could you please tell us a bit more about yourself, how you came to research on this topic, uh, given that your early works actually focus on modern China intellectual history? What attracts you to this ancient China, to the philosopher of um, you know, this Mozi movement and the comparative perspective? Well, first, thank you very much, Jessica for your interest in my book on Mozi. Um, I am basically a specialist in modern Chinese intellectual and cultural history. And I focused on the Chinese communist revolution. But since the early stage of my career, I've always regarded versatility as a career goal. My pursuit of versatility started with my research on modern Chinese history. In addition to the communist revolution, I also studied topics such as modern Chinese democratic thought and the gender issue. And gradually, I became fascinated with any kind of ancient history. Well, um, I think that there are significant differences between research on modern history and study of ancient history. The ancient past is so distant from our time that original sources are relatively limited. In addition, the textual histories of these sources are not obvious. Um, This also means when we study the ancient period, we have to study the formation of this text. Uh, We really have to stretch our imagination to understand the sources and the history that they tell. Um, As a modern China person, I've been humbled by the skills and efforts which are necessary when historians want to produce knowledge about the ancient world. I was therefore interested in experiencing what it was like to be someone using ancient sources. This led to my decision to study Mozi as I planned to diversify my scholarly interests. I will never become a real expert on ancient China, but I'm really glad that studying Moism enabled me to learn a little about how to research on the ancient world. Wow. 
Hong Yuk, thank you so much. You're setting up an impossible example as a both a scholar and a lifelong learner. Um, I think diversify in my own scholarship and um, later on make sure that I'm not a one-trick pony will be my new goal as a scholar. But uh, let's get into the big. Chapter one is the introduction. Here you hone in a few, a handful of key concepts that you later employed throughout the book to help us understand Moi's nonviolent movement in a new light. This include the history of nonviolence around the world, principled nonviolence, pragmatic nonviolence, um, as two key uh, con concepts, but also their blurred boundaries. And you also introduce a notion of a unbound self that's key to understand kind of the social vision of the Moist movement. Could you please uh, explain for the listeners very briefly what are these concepts, why you choose them as entry points or the analytic lens to understand uh, Moist text? Mm. Reading words on Buddhism, I became aware that a number of authors situate ancient Chinese thought, including Morrison, um, in nonviolent studies. Um, certainly, um, nonviolence could be defined in many ways, and I define it in a pretty inclusive fashion. Um, for me, it has two dimensions. First, in terms of goals, nonviolence is about historical agents' efforts to move their societies in the direction of betterment. Um, um, which is to say um, they want to create a society which is less oppressive than the status quo that they intend to redress. And second, in terms of methods, um, historical actors use strategies and methods which will limit damages to individuals and communities that will be impacted by their actions. And uh, it's pretty obvious to me that nonviolence is not just about thought and thinking. It's also about how people act and how they envision the possibilities of action. I focus on the activist aspect of the history of Morrison. In the field of nonviolent studies, for a long time, experts tend to assume the differences between principled nonviolence and uh, pragmatic nonviolence. Principled nonviolence refers to activism based on a commitment to nonviolence on moral or spiritual grounds. And uh, pragmatic nonviolence refers to the activist use of nonviolence based on the presumed effectiveness of nonviolent techniques. In the history of nonviolence, uh, some activists, uh, such as Gandhi, declared a principal commitment to nonviolence. And others, for instance, Mandela, emphasized that they chose nonviolence out of strategic considerations. However, recent scholarship encourages researchers to move beyond the binary mode to look at principled and pragmatic nonviolence. It points out that Gandhi, the foremost principled nonviolence advocate, appreciated the strategic nature of nonviolence. And uh, at the same time, people who perceive nonviolence as techniques do not always deny um, the moral and spiritual value of nonviolence. Uh, honestly, I like this more complex approach to nonviolent activism a lot more. Um, for this reason, 
I position the most movement in the historical landscape of nonviolence activism, where the differences between principled and pragmatic nonviolence are present but not absolute. Thank you so much, Hong Yot. Thank you so much for like helping um, orienting the listeners to understand the parameters, the complexity of this whole issue of nonviolence. There's ideal moral principles behind it. There's also the very pragmatic concerns, and then of course there's other goals, and then the very delicate, um, intricate ways of how we kind of uh, integrate our goals, principles, but then also put them into actions, considering the outcomes of our actions, not just alone as individual, but also as a society, as a group. Um, so oh, I hope... Uh, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, by the way, can, um, should I also introduce the notion of the unbound self and how I develop it, or would you prefer skipping it? Oh, please. Please go ahead, unbound self, yes. Yeah, um, regarding the notion of the unbound self, in my view, when serious historical agents pursue their goals, they also think a lot about whether they are capable of completing their missions. As a result, um, they examined how to nurture a personhood able to help them to achieve the outcomes that they desire. I call this personhood an unbound self because this project-oriented personhood is based on people's struggle to free themselves from the insufficiencies and fraud. In addition, extremely serious activists aim to cultivate an unbound self, which is defined by the continuous struggle for self-improvement. They work really hard to move beyond what they are in order to elevate the quality of their activism. Thank you. Yeah, that actually ties everything together because when you struggle, you think about principles, actions, outcomes of actions has, especially its impact on society has to kind of fold back to how do you perceive your personhood, your role in the world and in the society. So self-cultivation and social transformation is always combined into one, somehow intertwined. So let's move on to chapter two, sources and milieu. This chapter is really for um, listeners and readers who are not familiar with ancient China. Here you depicted the historical backgrounds of the warring states. Uh, first of all, could you please tell the readers what it feels like, um, based on you know the best of our knowledge, to be a commoner living in those times? Can you think of a historical period in the Western world, given that we are doing the interview and your book is in English? So um, I would assume not many people actually know much about warring state China. So can you think of a historical period in the Western world that shared these features, meaning widespread violence, hierarchical society, commoners don't, don't really have any channel to voice their concerns to the powerful? When I read this chapter, what comes to mind is the end of the Habsburg Empire, 13th, 17th century, when you know slave trade became a thing. And then also the 80-year wars uh, from 1568 to 1648, and between there's also the 30-year wars between uh, 1618 to 1614 in Central Europe. So what comes to your mind when you write this chapter other than like the warring states? Yeah, thank you for the question. Uh, well, I'm by no means familiar with the history of the Habsburg Empire, but 
Well, um, the um, final stage of the empire, the Eighty Years' War and the Thirty Years' War, etc. Uh, um, they certainly uh, are very violent times in history. Uh, and I agree that once this China was also a time of extreme violence, but it was also a process of historical transformation, which led to the demise of certain groups or state, but the rise of others. And actually, when I studied Morism, uh, what sometimes came to my mind was the history of ancient Rome, particularly the Roman Republic. Um, in the early centuries of the Republic, um, the uh, Papians used a succession strategically to defend their self-interest. For instance, the second cessation, which took place in 449 BC, the Papians withdrew to the sacred mount and pressed the Senate to restore the people's tribune, which had been suspended uh, for a while. And uh, preaching China was certainly very different from ancient Rome, where commoners were given certain institutionalized limited space to express their voices. But the history of secession always reminds me of how ancient commoners um, developed their violent or non-violent strategies in their specific context. Uh, um, mm -hmm. So uh, my point is that uh, even uh, uh, when commoners uh, were placed in uh, uh, highly unfavorable positions well, um, in certain historical contexts, um, they still managed well, to uh, um, develop uh, um, their strategies um, to fight for um, their welfare or uh, survival. Thank you so much, Hong Yeok. Um, I have to admit that I don't know much about ancient Rome, but um, I can see that whenever there's widespread um, violence, uh, societal-wide violence, there are all kinds of strategies. And so as historians, and especially intellectual historians, I think our job is to actually pay attention to not just the, you know, what the powerful has to say, but also the commoners, especially those commoners who said that we don't want violence, right? Um, what do we do then if we want a less violent or non-violent society? So that's why actually I find your book um, fascinating and your study of mods very um, um, thought-provoking. So in chapter three, we finally segue into... Um, a bit of moist um, a text is fighting against violence. Grassroots activists and transgrassroots trans activism. Here you oriented our readers and listeners about the complex collective authorship of the received text that we call today Mozi. You also closely read key passages to paint a picture of how the Moist right portrayed idealized Moist act in those texts. They are assertive. They came from Modi's background, yet sometimes choose to serve the government, but for the purpose of the benefits of the oppressed commoners. And the Moist, right, they also presented heaven as all-powerful, righteous, at the same time presented themselves as the heaven knowers, as the teachers of the elite, as the arbiters to assess and criticize the ruling class. And a key analytic lens you use here is to provide a well-rounded picture of those moist 
um, is, is the distinction between the so-called grassroots and the trans-grassroots activism in terms of their non-violent strategies. Please tell us a bit more about how, um, how do you distinguish them and then why it is important. And thank you very much for this great question. Um, I would say the social origins of the Moors have been debated by experts on ancient China, and I'm pretty sure that you are aware of this. And some think that Mozi or the Moors came from very humble origins, but not everyone agrees. Um, there are also works on modern states China, which identify Mozi as a member of lower level aristocracy. In my book, I do not intend to take part in the debate on the social origins of Mozi and the Moors, but it seems pretty obvious to me that Mozi and his followers um, did not have the pedigrees that make them feel socially or culturally close to the elite group that they hoped to impress. More importantly, the Moors emphasized their lowly origins. Their stories about their own background reveal that they positioned themselves as people of modest origins and total outsiders to the top elite circles. For this reason, it's really important that we take into consideration the moist self-positioning as movement intellectuals from the grassroots. And uh, what I found so interesting about the Moist is that they created themselves as grassroots activists who practice trans-grassroots activism. They define themselves as grassroots activists in terms of social origins and goals but they also created themselves as trans-grassroots activists on strategic terms. They made it very clear that they aim to influence the elite through persuasion and negotiation. And more interestingly, they wanted to work in the government to change the elite from within. Thank you very much, Hong Yok. This distinction between the grassroots um, kind of a... Uh, as origin and goal, and the transgressors as strategy is very important. One of the things that I feel I don't like about Western social theories when they talk about um, um, democracy uh, is that they pretend they they always starting with the starting point that assuming this society is kind of a leveled, equal, and then map out what is the ideal case, but then. History tell us repeatedly nothing is actually ideal in any sense, especially during those um, violent periods. So, um, so Moist strategy is basically very useful in the sense that if the society is fundamentally lopsided, hierarchical, unfair, violent, what do we do? if our goal is to build a non-violent society. And the, the positioning between the grassroots goals and principles, but then also the transgrassroots strategies sound like a way to go, um, given that the power structure is still um, set up that way. So if you are kind of, um, if we kind of uh, uh, abstain from serving the government, getting into the power play with the powerfuls, then you're kind of uh, um, handicapping yourself. But now let's move to chapter four, 
early China nonviolence, knowledge, and personhood. And this one is broadly about early China. Here you mapped out um, many beloved nonviolent strategies to gain power in ancient China. And your research question on page 92 says this, how did preaching, especially warring states writers, view the significance of nonviolence as a goal or means when they conceived the path to power? How did they imagine knowledge and human capacity for knowledge in a context where they expressed a key concern, a keen concern about efficacy in governments and other military and political matters? And how did early China's authors deal with issues of projects serving personhood and self-cultivation? Unquote. So those are your research questions. Could you please uh, explain a little bit to the listeners the key features of these important thinkers and schools like Kongzi, Xunzi, Mengzi, Dao De Jing authors, Han Feizi, on war and inclusive tolerance, and as well as knowledge. Knowledge means both self-knowledge and processual knowledge, and persuasion, negotiation, self-cultivation in their theories of a kind of benevolent leader or less violent form of governance. Yes. Um, when I wrote chapter four, um, my objective was to reconstruct the context where the Morse movement developed. Um, therefore, I focused on nonviolent, oh, sorry, I focused on non-Morse thinkers, including the Confucians, the Taoists, uh, and I also discussed the legalist and mutual thinkers. Well, uh, I basically um, divided them into two groups. Some of these thinkers were the realists, those who mainly prioritized survival and um, domination. Um, and they were the legalist uh, and mutual thinkers. And the idealists included those committed mainly to creating a more humane and less oppressive world. And they included mainly the Confucians, including Confucius, Mencius, and Sunzi. In addition, the Taoists, um, the authors of the Tao Jing and the Zhuangzi were included in this group as well. And uh, as expected, these people thought differently. For instance, the Confucian and Taoist thinkers were deeply critical of offensive warfare and any form of social or economic violence. Um, and the legalist and mutual thinkers focus on victory in political and military struggle. However, despite their contrast, uh, Wednesday's thinkers co-created a few themes which define pre-Chin China's political and strategic culture. They emphasize the linkages between nonviolent policies and effective governance. In their analysis, with with nonviolent policies, the rulers could earn popular support and they would become more powerful. In addition, as a collective, pre-Chin thinkers sometimes also thought a bit about how statesmen and officials could operate within a state within a state. Oh, I'll repeat this sentence. In addition, as a collective, Pritchin thinkers also thought a bit about how statesmen and officials could operate within a government to increase their influence. Um, they discussed how one could accommodate difference, and some of them appreciated tolerance and inclusiveness when it came to one's relationships with peers and authorities. 
the World Stage period was a very competitive time in history. Uh, and for this reason, World Stage writers uh, always share the view on the essential importance of knowledge production for political or military success. They examined various methods which promised to help officials, generals, etc., to accumulate to accumulate knowledge beneficial for their missions. For example, historical actors must survey all conditions, all factors related to their work, or they could undertake experiments to create the knowledge they need, or they could infer from details to formulate their insight. More interestingly, confident about human potential to learn, world state writers also examined how one could capture um, the more subtle or invisible aspects of reality. And Christian uh, thinkers also presumed that one's personhood determined whether one could develop effective nonviolent policies. And they also thought um, that personhood would determine whether one could produce useful knowledge. Uh, Chinese authors were deeply interested in the topic of self-cultivation, and they believed that self-cultivation would help historical actors to could de- um, um I repeat this sentence. They believed that self-cultivation would help historical actors to develop project-oriented personhood, which could enable them to accomplish their goals. Thank you very much, Hongyuk. So um, you, this chapter is very, very helpful in terms of understanding <clears throat> all these um, proposals have been made in other directions. So you can we can understand more better in context who would he, you know, who what is most, um, you know, arguing against, debating ways, and then acting, you know, along ways or acting against. Um, I just want to prime the readers, right? You mentioned um, there are also kind of a, a group of scholars and intellectuals who actually focus on kinship, power, governance, and uh, <clears throat> and those kind of thinkings actually, I think, is pretty typical of the time in around the world, Axial Age. Han Fei, for example, reminds, calls to mind the, the Indian ancient texts around the same time, maybe, uh, you know, plus minus 100 years, the Arta Shastra, talking about kinship, uh, dharma, arta, uh, moral principles, and, you know, real politics strategies, how do we combine the two? And, of course, the most important thing about Warring States China is self-cultivation. Everyone, everything he was talking about self-cultivation, but in their own term, on their own terms, but also conversing with each other. So that's the kind of intellectual rich, lush intellectual landscape that uh, Mozart's movements kind of emerged from. Now, chapter five, the use of nonviolence, Mozart's activism and Mozart's personhood. In this chapter, you outline a two-pronged approach to nonviolence, persuasion, primarily persuasion and negotiation, but at the same time, also a very specific case when Mois would engage with pragmatic nonviolence, how they backed up their nonviolence, uh, their counterviolence, use kind of a, a counterviolence with knowledge production. So these nonviolence or counterviolence strategies are premised upon a particular sort of personhood that allows Mois 
to be capable of inclusive nonviolence, resolute military, um, <clears throat> but also at the same time resolutely military in dealing with the elite to achieve their goals of lessening class oppression. So could you please, for the benefits of listeners, just say a bit more um, how the more is negotiated with what sort of knowledge they seek to reproduce, uh, to produce and prepare them to engage with counter-violence strategies and what kind of personhood is implied by these strategies and what are the challenges they face as a Moist who work with along elites, but ultimately actually for the benefit of the oppressed. Yeah, these are really great questions. Uh, um, when I studied the Morris movement, I was pretty much struck with the Morris two-pronged or two-track approach to nonviolent resistance. When the Morris dealt with the ruling elite's oppressive relationships with the people, they used persuasion and negotiation. And it seems to me that the Morris did not discuss clearly the issue of the backup plan that is, what the Moorish activists could do or whether they could resort to counter-violence if persuasion and negotiation failed to make the ruling class change their oppressive ways. But the Moorish chose the option of pragmatic non-violence when they dealt with aggression in the interstate system of ancient China. Um, they would consider counter-violence when they thought that nonviolent strategies were unable to stop the aggressor. In some, um, the more pragmatic deployment of nonviolence was confined to resistance to offensive warfare. And um, the Moors worked really hard to produce knowledge which facilitated their efforts to counter oppression. Um, they continuously refined their negotiation and persuasion tactics and they also studied warfare diligently. Uh, they studied both defensive and offensive warfare. And in fact, the Moorist knowledge about warfare was so comprehensive and so deep that they became true experts on offensive warfare. And the uh, Moorist chapters um, on defensive warfare explain at length how one could resist various types of attacks but to be a good or effective moist was by no means easy. Um, a good moist moved within elite circles without forgetting all about the people. Uh, he must also have the knowledge to deal with the oppressive elite through persuasion, negotiation, and violent means. And uh, Morris thought a lot about how to cultivate a personhood with which they could operate effectively. Um, according to them, an ideal Moist was an activist who could overcome various forms of self-occupation. He would not be domesticated in the establishments easily as he did not crave fame, wealth, status, or official positions, etc. for himself. And he was unbiased, flexible, and highly effective because he will not be attached to what he knows or a specific kind of strategy or tactic when he operated. Uh, and as for his character, um, he was compassionate, embracing the world, and especially dedicated to those who suffer. 
but he could also be ferocious when fighting aggressors. Um, the Moors activists treated heaven as their model, as they imagined heaven as infinitely wise, all-embracing, and compassionate. But heaven, uh, in their imagination, could also be fierce in dealing with those who harm life. So to emulate heaven uh, um, is one of their, um, I would say, to emulate heaven is their most important goal in self-cultivation. But to emulate heaven, uh, which is regarded as perfect um, in the most tradition, also meant that the most path to self-cultivation was extremely difficult. Thank you, Hong Yop. Honestly, uh, when I was reading this chapter, I think I get a deeper understanding of how difficult it is to try to become moist. Because when you're dealing with elites who are trained or accustomed to deal with uh, issues, resolve conflicts using violence and domination, you need to know their, um, their training, their psychology, what they want, what they don't want. And you also need to know, have like kind of extensive knowledge about uh, what kind of uh, attacking tactics, right? The, the technologies they have, and then think about better ways to kind of outdo them. Um, almost impossible to achieve, um, but nonetheless, um, they tried it, and then they they read they write it write it down, and then kind of inspired many others to join the movement. So yeah, I think, I, um, yeah. Go on. Um, yeah. So I just want to admire, you know, show my admirations to this kind of goals. Um, because when people talk about nonviolence, typically in, we call into mind the image of people just like sit there being peaceful, being all agreeable, but Moise is really nothing like that. Right? It's just like you have to know everything and then act accordingly. And then do not shy away from violence when it is absolutely necessary. Okay, so now let's move on to the next several chapters. So in contrast to chapters from 3 to 4, 5 that focus on the close readings of primary text, in the next two chapters, actually chapters 6 and 7, you put Moe's movement into conversation with other more modern kind of non-violent movement leaders such as Dr. Kin, Gandhi, Mandela into conversation. So in chapter six, you examine different ways that Moist nonviolent strategies enrich our understanding of the history of nonviolence itself. By uh, so because this is because the Moist nonviolent uh, strategies, right, they sit in the intersection of the principled and pragmatic nonviolence. For example, the Moist you've mentioned, right, they appeal to the spiritual elements such as the heaven as all-knowing universal love, but at the same time, they do not shy away from using um, counter-violence strategies when all other nonviolent strategies fail. And then that brings into focus a key point that the use of counterviolence is necessarily incompat is not necessarily incompatible with principled nonviolence. And this just further muddy the lines between, you know, what we cherish the distinction between principled and pragmatic nonviolence. And another way that moist activism enriches our understanding of the history and strategies of nonviolence is their focus on self-cultivation, which you already mentioned several times. Uh, but this for them is a pillar of their activism, right? They're combining both inner change 
and social change into one. And this sort of self-cultivation is needed for effective non-violent activists. And those kind of self-cultivation actually have quite a few shared features among all these non-violent movements leaders. So could you please tell us a bit more about the different ways that ancient Moist movement could broaden and deepen our understanding of the history and practices of non-violence? Um, so Jessica, um, you have just summarized very nicely the main points I discussed in Chapter 6. I really admire the way in which uh, you explain um, the compatibility between well, um, non-violence and counter-violence, at least in the case uh, of uh, um, of the Moist. Well, um, so I think I just discussed a couple of issues here. Um, as I said, the Moist did not practice pragmatic non-violence whenever they had issues to resolve. Um, they went for pragmatic nonviolence only when necessary um, in their resistance to aggressors. And they used pragmatic nonviolence in a really, really selective way. Um, and it seems um, to me um, that the most use of nonviolence is highly project specific, depending on the nature and the degrees of the oppressive relationships that they intended to confront. Um, at specific points in history. In addition, I found the Moist movement highly elitist um, compared to well-studied modern nonviolent movement, uh, which were always based on the masses' involvement and participation. While um, certainly, while um, um, to some extent, um, the Moors interacted with the masses uh, um, is. Uh, likely that uh, um, they preached, um, they preached um, their own uh, um, uh, thought um, and ideology among the people um, to recruit uh, potential followers. And in addition, the Moors also organized the masses um, during uh, office. office um, the Moors also organized the masses during defensive warfare. Um, but basically, um, in the Moorism, the foundational text of Moorism, most uh, authors focus on how intellectuals of the Moorist movement could produce knowledge and how they could cultivate themselves in order to be more elect, in order to be more effective. So for this, for all these reasons, um, I found um, the Moorist movement were highly elitist, which posed um, a big contrast to modern um, nonviolent movement. Thank you very much, Hong Yop. So, um, yeah, um, I don't know. I just feel like even though they are elitist, but this is all we know, we can know about ancient China. If they are not elitist, their yeah. writings were not likely to be preserved. And mm -hmm. uh, we just have to go yeah. through archaeology <laughs> to understand what like the other ninety nine percent were doing. But yeah, it's this also is true. Kind of, yeah, yeah, it's also kind of nice to know that even if you came from Modi's background, you can still you know and then aspire to join the eighties. But you don't really have to be a sellout. You can still work for the benefits um, to building a less oppressive regime. Um. So that's why I mean, your book gave me hope. Um, and then let's just move on to the last chapter, <clears throat> chapter seven. 
here you further illustrate three kinds of moist conflict resolution strategies that can further broaden our understanding of the richness of nonviolence in human history in general. And one thing is the negotiation strategy that foreshadowed modern non-adversarial mode of negotiation. The other is the art of negotiating from the weak position, which you guys lectured very nicely for my students last semester. And the last strategy is the moist exploration into the intellectual emotional makeup and self-cultivation of successful negotiators. So please um, tell us something some more about these fascinating insights that you excavated from these ancient texts. Yeah, thank you. Um, Jessica, for summarizing this chapter so eloquently, well, um, I think the Moors uh, were not alone in the attention to negotiation and conflict resolution. Uh, many ancient Chinese thinkers were also deeply interested in negotiation, persuasion, and conflict resolution, although they did not necessarily uh, share uh, the Moors' goal of creating a nonviolent society. Um, and when I was reading ancient Chinese text, um, um, what I found really interesting or intriguing is that uh, Warren's Day's thinkers were always interested in um, the second strategy, that is how um, a weak party could communicate to powerful authorities in non-confrontational but effective ways. Um, for instance, in the famous Taoist text, the Zhuangzi, there is a story about Confucius teaching his disciple how to deal with an evil ruler. And uh, Han Feizi, an essential one state text, has a chapter which discusses the difficulties of persuasion. Well, um, it's about how those who are stuck in an unfavorable position uh, could engage powerful people. And uh, to be exact, it's about how officials could influence their kings with their persuasion skills for their own purposes. And these purposes might not be related to any idealistic, nonviolent goals. And the, um, the text emphasizes that officials should observe their rules psychology, um, including their preferences, desires, uh, likes and dislikes, while hidden motives, etc., to communicate with him effectively. And the author famously says, the difficult thing about persuasion is to know the mind of the person one is trying to persuade and to be able to fit one's words to it. And the statement uh, is then accompanied by uh, many, many great examples. Uh, in addition, Warren State's Chinese thinkers also pay attention to how certain inner conditions, especially uh, concentration of the mind and uh, equanimity, could enhance one's performances in persuasion and conflict resolution. And that also explains why uh, many of them are very interested in exploring self-cultivation. Um, for me, not only the Moors, but also many other ancient Chinese thinkers should be studied by experts um, on history of persuasion, negotiation, and conflict resolution. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I think negotiating from weak position is actually such a rich topic that worth like many, many more studies because I think um, 
the difficulty is that if you're in a weak position, you talk to the powerful, the powerful would just like dismiss you out of hand. Like, why do I need to negotiate you? You have you're not my peer, right? I can just crush you, you know, with my power. So why do I need to negotiate? So the weak party actually need to know more. And I think what's intriguing about Moism is that they, they use knowledge and knowledge production to make sure that um, the powerful cannot easily dismiss them. So uh, for me, that's one of the highlights of the chapter. And there are just many, I just want to mention that there's so many more insights about the book um, that we didn't get into. So uh, Hong Yok, we have taken a lot of your time. Um, since there's just so many things so such a, from such a rich book that we didn't get time to talk about, um, is there anything else in the book that you would like to just prime the readers or highlight for the future readers, listeners and readers, um, so that, you know, we don't miss out the important parts of the book. Um, yeah, thank you for your kind words. And an and additional thing that would be of interest to readers uh, is that I examine uh, Mozi uh, in a framework uh, which... Uh, also centers on the issue of power. And uh, one of the arguments I attempted to make writing the book was that uh, um, um, power uh, um, is not only possessed uh, by the elite uh, who uh, had a lot of resources, and power uh, could be possessed by the law elite as well if they uh, uh, were able um, to adopt um, the right strategies and tactics um, to pursue it. Um, and my book is about uh, how the Moors attempted to create power for themselves through knowledge production uh, and serious attention to self-cultivation. Thank you so much. So self-cultivation and knowledge production is not just about spiritual needs. It actually has real-world consequences because... It helps you gain power so that they, the powerful cannot easily dismiss you. Thank you so much. Such a nice wrap up of the book. So before we part our ways, this is the last traditional New Books Network question. What are you working on now? What keeps you busy? Oh, um, currently I'm working on a project on modern Chinese Buddhism. And the theme I focus on is suffering which I think is an essential condition of Chinese modernity. And uh, the project starts with uh, how the Chinese told stories about their suffering, including personal suffering and collective suffering. And uh, on that basis, I will examine the diverse ways in which they discuss Buddhist spirituality in their stories, uh, such as how they stress the importance of Buddhism, or how they actually delimited the significance of Buddhism, as they as they describe the struggle, um, uh, as they describe their struggle against their agonies. Um, so basically, the project is about Buddhism uh, in the modern Chinese discourses of suffering. Well. That sounds like another fascinating book that I have to interview you for because I work on modern Buddhism too, modern Chinese Buddhism. Yeah. I will so, consult with um, you regarding many issues. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for your time. 